Soon and very soon we are going to see the King. A message that is clear from God's Word that those who know and follow Christ uh, will soon be with Him forever and ever. A message that's clear in our uh, text from God's Word this morning. A message that's clear from uh, the book of Revelation. So let me invite you to turn with me to that portion of the Scripture today. To turn with me to the final book of God's Word. The book of Revelation, a text, a, a book that we've been studying for a number of weeks now. In fact, uh, we're in our 21st uh, sermon from Revelation together on Sunday morning, and we've got uh, about eight or more so to go, and so we're getting there. Um, but the reason that we read and study the Bible this way, the reason that we consecutively, most often, we consecutively uh, work through sections or books of God's Word is simple, uh, because it's God's Word. And all Scripture is God-breathed. And all Scripture is useful. So let me encourage you to look at it with me today. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, let me encourage you to, uh, to, to grab a pew Bible. And you can find this text on page 999. But even though all Scripture is God-breathed, all Scripture is, is useful. Uh, it's instruction. We uh, probably have learned, I've certainly learned, I imagine most of you have learned that all Scripture is not equally easy to understand. Revelation is challenging. Much of Scripture is challenging. Revelation is challenging, but it's good. It's rich and it's rewarding uh, when we approach it humbly, ready to receive its, its message. And as I've shared before, there are a number of different perspectives for reading this portion of, of God's Word. And uh, folks disagree on the, the best approach. But at the end of the day, we agree, folks ought to agree, the church ought to agree. Throughout church history, the church has agreed on the central truths of this portion of God's Word. And the more I read it, the more I study it, uh, the more I'm convinced uh, that Revelation is not simply, not just futuristic prophecy, primarily about a final end time generation of believers, but I think it's about the ongoing spiritual battle between good and evil for the past 1900 plus years of church history, including the present time, and also on into the future when Christ comes again. I realize that might not be the way that you've been taught this book. That's not really the way that I was taught this book growing up. And when we hear things that are a bit different from what we've been taught, our antennas usually go up, and that's a good thing. Uh, but in this case, our having not been taught it doesn't ad- adequately represent the vast number of Christians throughout church history and ac- across the globe uh, who read Revelation this way. But again, that's not uh, a major thing either way. However we come away from this book, whether we see it primarily referring to a final end time generation of events or we see it, uh, as I see it, describing a cosmic conflict going on throughout the church age, we ought to land in the same place. And so that's been our, our, our task, that's been our approach, that's been our goal, and that will remain uh, such. In other words, at the end of the day, its central message and its key themes are clear. And so once again, our aim is to hear the message, to hear God's message, to discern its truths, and to apply them to our lives as followers of Jesus. And with that being said, let's look at the text. So as you find your place in Revelation chapter 14, uh, let me invite you uh, to join me standing this morning, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of God's holy word. Revelation chapter 14, uh, I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. John writes, he says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, 
standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. The third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of God's people who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Would you pause with me in prayer? Lord, this morning we ask you to speak to us. Lord, to instruct us, to guide us, to clarify for us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, faith to believe. Father, we thank you that your spirit is with us and we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. So speak to us now, for we are listening. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'll be honest, if I was uh, choosing which portions of the Bible to read and preach based on the popularity of their content, then you can rest assured I would not have chosen this text. Way, way too much talk of hell to begin with. And who and what in the world is going on with these 144 Thousand. That number has been the subject of much debate. Can't we just steer clear of it? Well, no, we can't because all scripture is God breathed and useful. And so who are they? Who are these? We met them earlier in our study. We met them from chapter seven. Uh, and uh, I believe uh, that they represent all followers of, of Jesus Christ. That 144 represents 12 tribes of Israel times 12 apostles of the church times 1,000 emphasizing their size, but also, uh, also like Old Testament listings, as we saw in chapter 7 of the various tribes, they are numbered for battle. And this time it's clearly a spiritual battle. 
No longer portrayed here as, a pers- as the persecuted saints, but as a conquering army, for they have overcome, verse 4, by following the Lamb wherever He goes, even unto death. Now that's debatable. Folks debate the identity of these folks. We don't want to major on that. Again, at the end of the day, we ought to come to the same place. But I think there are numerous interpretive clues that suggest this is who they are, that they symbolically represent all followers of Christ. And they're depicted here. To portray heaven for God's people. There's no doubt about that. I think the reason that John describes what they are doing and what it's like for them right here is because he wants to describe what it's like for those who have gone before and what it will be like for those who are trusting Jesus for salvation. In other words, the truth that John is emphasizing is this. God will give followers of Jesus a glorious future. God will give followers of Jesus a A glorious future. If uh, you were here the last two or three weeks, then you know from chapters 12 and 13, things uh, were not so great in the present. Two chapters that remind us that we live in an evil place. We've been reminded once again that we live in an evil place with a shooting that took place in another part of the world. Many lives were lost and we ought to pray for them. Live in an evil place, a place where the devil teams up with two beasts representing worldly authorities who oppose God and the ways of God. The words of one author, yet in contrast to the nightmare happening on earth, heaven is pulsating with a thunderous celebration. John projects his struggling congregations into the future experience of the victory of the Lamb. In other words, John once again transfers his pressured and persecuted audience of Christians to heaven, providing eternal perspective in order to encourage and motivate faithfulness to Christ in the present. Let's sort of think about that a bit further. There's a a basketball game that's coming on a little bit later today, not long from now, an SEC championship game between the Auburn Tigers and the Tennessee uh, Volunteers. And uh, I know we've got we've got a handful of Tennessee fans. We've got quite a few more Auburn uh, fans and we've got uh, some other fans whose teams didn't make it quite so far. Uh, But we don't know the outcome of this game. It's anybody's game at this point. But can you imagine if either one of those teams somehow got a glimpse of the outcome of this game? If they got a window into where this was going, if they gave it their all. And if they knew, if they gave it their all, that they would win the game, do you think that would affect the way they approached the game? No doubt it would. Don't you think they'd run faster, they'd defend better, they'd jump higher, they would do their very best to win the game. And in a similar fashion, John is giving believers, he's given the church a message of encouragement You see, despite worldly opposition to the gospel, the Lamb, a.k.a. Jesus Christ, is victorious. And those who identify with Him will also be victorious over sin, over Satan and his allies, even over death, for their future will be a future of standing with Christ. Standing with Christ. Chapter 14, verse 1, John says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb. He was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him... These 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. The Bible, Mount Zion, is used a a number of times, numerous times. And it can refer to the Temple Mount. It can refer to Jerusalem. It can refer to uh, all of Israel. It can refer to heaven. But far more important, I think, than its geographical referent is the fact that it is the place where God is. 
That's what John is emphasizing. John emphasizes that believers who follow the Lamb, despite pressure and persecution, will ultimately be where Jesus is, claimed by Jesus, and His name and His Father's name will be written on their foreheads. See, in a marked contrast to the mark of the beast, Christians are sealed and secure by the Lamb. A glorious heavenly future, standing with Christ and singing to Christ, singing to Christ. John says, verse 2, then I heard uh, the sound, uh, or uh, the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. Beautiful sound. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Exuberant praise, harmonious melody, the anthem of heaven instrumentation and rhythm and song. Book of Psalms attests that King David was quite the musician, quite the songwriter, but he was also a man of faith. He knew that this gift was ultimately given to him by God. Psalm 40, verse 3, he says, He, meaning God, put a new song in my mouth. God gave me this song. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Likewise, Israel's priests in Psalm 42, verse 8, declared, By day the Lord directs His love. At night, God's song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Friends, God is the chief musician and the master artist. He inspires praise. And He gives the gifts with which we express it. There's no doubt about it. Revelation anticipates lively singing in the presence of God and the Lamb, hymns of adoration, songs of redemption, and anthems of glory. God will give followers of Jesus Christ a glorious future, standing with Christ, singing to Christ, and sanctified through Christ. Sanctified through Christ, or set apart. Sanctified through Christ. Verse 4. These in heaven are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now on the surface, John seems to be excluding, if this is a picture of heaven, I think it is, seems to be excluding uh, nearly everyone from heaven. If we take his words literally and with little knowledge of the rest of God's word, then only celibate men enter glory. But that's not what he's saying. He's alluding to the Old Testament, uh, uh, he's alluding to Old Testament Israel's army practicing ritual purity in preparation for battle. Remember the story of Uriah the Hittite, or David and Bathsheba. David takes another man's wife, he takes Bathsheba to be his own wife. Wife, in a moment of sin, while Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, is off fighting David's battle, and Bathsheba gets pregnant, so David summons Uriah home in an attempt to cover his tracks. What does Uriah do? He won't go home. He won't go to his house. He won't sleep with his wife because his countrymen are out engaged in a battle. He's been set apart. He's devoted to the cause at hand. And John is reminding his readers, he's reminding us that we too are engaged in a battle, a spiritual battle. And throughout Revelation, the images of fornication and adultery, not just Revelation, throughout God's Word, images of fornication and adultery are used to describe spiritual idolatry of compromising one's devotion to Jesus alone and practicing the ways of the world text that we won't look at that's not on the screen but if you want to explore that a little more second corinthians chapter 11 
verses 2 and 3, Paul uses very similar language and makes that connection clear. But in essence, John is saying these in heaven who are claimed by Jesus and singing to Jesus are those who were devoted to Jesus on earth. They are those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are those who know and who tell the truth, verse 5, confirming, uh, continuing to affirm Christ Jesus as faithful witnesses of the Gospel. The same Christ, the same Lord who once said, Luke chapter 9, He said, whoever wants to be My disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow Me. Follow Me. This is for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it again and again. The scriptures, revelation, describe and portray the cost of following Jesus Christ. You see, the very ones ostracized from the world economy, chapter 13, verse 17, are valued in God's economy. They are sanctified, they are set apart, they are faithful, for they are His. And those who are His have a glorious future. We don't know a whole, whole lot about what that future is going to look like other than what the Bible tells us. I can tell you that my four-year-old is convinced at present that there are numerous TVs in heaven that play Toy Story and other uh, such films. I'm not so sure about that, but I am sure that in heaven God claims Christ's followers as His very own. He invites them to participate in an ongoing heavenly worship celebration and that those there are blameless because the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed, covered, and changed them forever and ever and ever. Will you be there? You want to be there. Will you be there? God will give followers of Jesus Christ a glorious future, but it is, no doubt, a future only reserved for followers of the Lamb. It's a future that's only reserved. The Bible is clear on this for those who follow Jesus Christ. Are you a follower of Jesus? You see, God commands all people to worship Him. Calls all. He commands all people to worship Him because only He is worthy of our worship. Are you worshiping Him? Are you worshiping the living God? Are you worshiping the God who has made Himself known to us in the Scriptures? The God who has made Himself known to us in Jesus Christ. Are you worshiping this true and living God? John calls his audience, he calls us to worship the true and living God. The three angels of our text proclaim a three-point sermon. Worship God. For judgment is certain and it is coming, so repent before it's too late. You see, all people are instructed, commanded, invited to bow before the living God, but we know this, not all people do. In fact, most do not. So the call for repentance continues on, beckoning unbelievers to become believers, warning the world's inhabitants to to worship the true and the sovereign and the living King, the one so full of mercy and love that He Himself entered this sinful world, embracing humanity, taking on flesh Himself and evangelizing the lost. Jesus said, the fullness of God in human flesh, the Son of God incarnate, Jesus, God in the flesh, went into Galilee, the Scriptures say, Mark chapter 1. He went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Time has come, He said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. A message of, of warning. An invitation, a call to repent and to trust in Him, to follow the true King. 
The first angel's message, verse 6, recalls Jesus' promise of worldwide gospel proclamation. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. See, God commands all people to worship Him, yet many continue to reject Him. To live in rebellion against their Maker. To ignore the very One to whom we owe our existence. And regardless of the flippancy with which we speak of hell today, and the glibness with which we joke about death, the Bible is clear that unbelievers will experience God's eternal wrath. Unbelievers. Those who don't trust in Him, those who don't follow the Lamb, will experience God's eternal wrath. Verse 9. The angel proclaimed, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, and we dealt with that text from chapter 13 last week, and essence, I think John is saying, if anyone compromises, if anyone worships anyone or anything other than the true and living God, they too, verse 10, will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. So they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. And you say, well, I don't, I don't like that. Friend, I don't like it either. Can I just be real honest this morning? What matters is not whether we like it, but if God says it and whether or not we believe it because He says it. As a pastor, I, I hear people from time to time say something like the Bible's message seems so inconsistent. I, I like Jesus. Just give me what Jesus said. I want to cling to Jesus. Give me a, a red letter Bible. Friend, do you know what Jesus said? Jesus Spoke a similar message time and time and time again. He spoke of judgment and hell time and again. One such example, Matthew chapter 13, verse 40. Jesus said, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. He says, the Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear. In other words, hear the message. Don't miss it. Friends, make no mistake about it and do not make light of it. Unbelievers will experience God's eternal wrath, but believers will experience God's eternal rest. Believers, saved by God's grace, will experience God's eternal rest. Verse 13, John says, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. I don't know about you, but heavenly rest sounds pretty good to me. In this final book of God's Word, this salvation symphony, John agrees with the previous 65 books of Bible by declaring that there are really only two ways to go, the way of sin and Satan or the way of the Lord. Which path are you on? Which road are you walking? Who are you following? Who is your Lord? Your response to Jesus determines your eternity. If we take the Bible seriously at all, 
The Bible is absolutely clear that your response to Jesus determines your eternity. When asked about the way to heaven, remember what Jesus said. Jesus said to Thomas and the rest of the disciples, He said, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So friends, church, believers, what, what do we do with this? But what do we do with what the Bible says about sin and judgment and heaven and hell? Let me offer three ways quickly that we must respond to these eternal truths. First, praise the Lamb who gave His life for you. Praise the Lamb who gave His life for you. See, the message of Revelation 14 is not a message for someone else. It's easy for us to read a portion of God's Word and say, well, so-and-so needs to hear this. Maybe so. It's not a message for someone. It's a message for you. It's a message for me. It's a word of warning and exhortation, a call to worship. It's a call to sing a song of redemption to our Redeemer who purchased us. An invitation to celebrate the profound reality that the God of this universe has taken his own wrath so you and I don't have to. Praise the Lamb who gave His life for you and proclaim the gospel of God's saving grace. Proclaim the gospel of God's saving grace. You see, the message we proclaim is a message of salvation for whosoever will believe in Christ and receive His gift. We speak the truth. We better speak the truth. Called to speak the truth about sin and death and hell, but we do so in love, for we know that it is only by God's grace that we ourselves have been rescued. The words of one pastor and friend says, We must deliver this message of warning and judgment with love and compassion. He says, We are like a caring doctor informing a vulnerable patient that he or she has cancer. We do not dismiss the report of the physician who diagnoses cancer as meaningless drivel. We do not ridicule the lifeguard for warning of dangerous riptides. If we are going to hell, shouldn't someone stand in our way and offer the gospel? Christian, may you and I stand in the way and offer the gospel. To your unbelieving neighbor, stand in the way. And offer the gospel. To your lost cousin, stand in the way and offer the gospel. To your friends and students and professors and co-workers, proclaim the gospel of God's saving grace. For their response to Jesus determines their eternity. Friends, praise the Lamb who gave His life for you. Who stood in our place. took the penalty and the punishment for our sins so that we could be forgiven, not because of anything we have done or anything in us, but only by God's grace. Praise that Lamb. Proclaim the gospel of God's saving grace. And finally, John says to us, he says to the church, persevere. Persevere in faith. Press on. Persevere in faith. I'm not much for long distance running, but in Christ we are called to practice not a sprint, but a marathon. Faithfulness to the end, affirms our faith from the beginning. You see, John's message is meant to encourage the Christian minority to press on, to keep serving Jesus Christ, to resist the temptation to compromise, to keep sharing the message of redemption, to remain faithful to Jesus, verse 12. And friends, since Christ is the victorious King who will 
soon deliver us to our eternal home. In the words of Paul, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. In other words, be committed to Christ and His work. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Friends, may we stand firm. May we press on. May we serve the Lord. Father, would you help us do just that? Lord, lead us, guide us by the presence of your Spirit. Lord, continue speaking to us through your Word. Guide us, Lord, that we might be faithful to know and to follow Jesus Christ and to live for Him. And Father, we thank You that You are sovereign. That You reign. That there is no one like You. And that there is nothing that slips by You. Lord, that You are fully aware of all things. Which means, Lord, that You're fully aware of our sin. Lord, You know when we fail You. You know when we run from You. We You know when we rebel against you. And even so, Lord, you have looked on us in mercy. And you invite us to know you and to be washed clean, to be cleansed of our sin, to be given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Or to be children of the Most High God. To be counted among the redeemed. To be sealed and secure by your presence. Lord, you claim us as your own. Lord, may that gospel truth, may that grace and mercy and kindness and patience Motivate us to live for you now and forever. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.